My name is Dave Owens. I'm a professor at Vanderbilt, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? Well, my name is Dave Owens, or David Owens, and I am a professor at Vanderbilt at the business school. And I study, or I don't know if I study or I'm just, I'm just very, very interested in uh, creativity and innovation, and as, especially as it's applied to new product and service development. And so I'm a teacher, I'm an author, and uh, primarily a, a tinker and um, person who loves to uh, be around people doing new stuff. The stuff is great, but also the, the people doing it, that's what's really interesting. And and along those lines, I know you, you told me offline there was a, a seminar that developed teach innovation to large organizations, and that inspired the book, uh, Creative People Must Be Stopped. Is, is that the whole story, or is there more to the reason for bringing this book forward? The um, it's I guess it's part of the story. So the the the, the story, yeah. The, the 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 structure of the book and and the and a lot of the ideas in there were developed through uh, that. A seminar I do. I actually do a seminar with nonprofits. I also do a seminar with um, with with, with um, you know, corporate organizations. I worked recently with Nissan, NASA, lots of of companies like that. And so the um, the book came out of this this my uh, some thinking I had been um, struggling with about um, innovation in general. So I would often start a seminar and say, Hey, you know, how do you define innovation? And then and if there's a hundred people there. There'd be like you know, 500 <laughs> definitions of innovation. And I kept getting confused and, and, and confusing other people about how uh, these different definitions related to each other. Each time a person said something, it made perfect sense, that it was, it was sort of logical. But then when um, I put one person against another person, it didn't make sense. And, and it's like, well, they're saying, you know, innovation is all about this creative idea that a person has. And there's other people saying innovation is all about a market that wants to change. And so I, I was having trouble um, understanding how those things related to each other, and so um, and so the book was it was, it was partly an, an exploration of that of the different ways that we look at innovation, and the um, so the subtext of the book is or the subtitle of the book is six ways we kill innovation uh, without even trying, and those six ways are different, just basically six different definitions of innovation that people use, and how um, each one of those is its own world, but in fact the um, when you take that whole world together then you begin to see a broader picture of innovation and um, uh, are able to basically to, to, to um, use the term relax, but to use the term uh, um, to sort of negotiate between the different uh, perspectives um, of innovation. I'm not sure if I answered <laughs> exactly right, but, but basically it, it is, it's this grappling with everyone defines innovation differently. And so like, how do I, um, in the situation I'm in, you know, for any person in the situation they're in, how do they create a definition that actually allows them to move forward? Well, and I think that's interesting that you bring up the definitions because on some level I, I sort of feel like we're at this stage in either researching the ideas or tinkering with whatever works. I think people mm -hmm. think creativity and innovation are synonymous, and yet there's a big yeah. difference between the two. Yes, there really is. Yeah, I would, I would, I definitely um, think that a lot of if you push people on it, they they will they'll they'll start to, to um, you know to sort of make a differential, but in our a differentiation, but sort of in our, our more casual or lazy or colloquial language, we don't really make a, a distinction. I think it's a problem that we don't do that, actually. Um, I think uh, for, for my sake or for my purposes, um, I try to include in innovation the idea that the thing is valued, that the thing is um, adopted, that um, for me, 
uh, I think it helps us if we say an innovation is this thing that in the end it's successful if it's adopted, if it changes the world, if people you know build their life around it, um, which creativity doesn't necessarily need to do. I think we need creative things in our life that they don't need to be um, things that um, you know change the world in, in, in some way. Yeah. No, I, I, absolutely. I think there's always, to me, there's always a distinction where create, creativity is sort of the idea generation. And I know um, yeah. Teresa, Teresa Mabale always says that it has to be novel and useful. But to me, that's when we cross the boundary. As soon as they're useful enough to get into mass adoption, then we have a real uh, innovation rather than just a creative insight. Right. That's right. And and I think the thing is, um, I, I can see sort of in a, in a um, I'm really familiar with Teresa's work in a, um, Corporate environment. So, so in a, in, a, in a more intellectual environment, the the um, well, it's important from a psychology perspective to define what creativity is, what we mean by that. But I think from a corporate perspective, when we are uh, in a management situation, we're asking people to innovate. Um, that means something different than I say, "Hey, go be creative," <laughs> you know, versus I need an innovation from you. Um, that I think the the signals that you're sending to people uh, are important, and, and understanding how it is that they're going to respond to that. You know that that uh, demand or request, or you know, I- imploring them to be um, innovative, it might be really different than being creative. And I think um, a lot of uh, risk. It, 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 anyway, it, it, uh, using the word innovation in a in a more articulate way can help us do things like manage risk. It help us motivate people. It can help us understand um, help them understand what to do. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and in that process of bringing about. Um, innovation within an organization. You're, the book outlines uh, six different constraints or six different innovation killers. And I don't want to ask you to give away the whole book because our listeners need to, to go out and get it. Um, but if, could we go over briefly kind of what those six are and, and how they develop? Yeah. Yeah. So the six um, uh, constraints are, are so the, 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 let me start from this place. So the place was I was once a designer. I was, I'm an engineer, genetically an engineer. And I um, worked at a, a product development company, IDEO, and had always done that kind of work, um, you know, as, even as a kid, and then uh, be, began working at that. And so um, what, I, what I came to realize, and, and um, every, everyone who does design or creative work knows this, uh, you have a, uh, let me call it d- d- design work, not necessarily creative work, design work. Now I'm getting sloppy with my language. Um, so design work that there are certain uh, constraints, let's call them, for any project. So if I'm a graphic designer and they say we're going to use four-color ink, uh, four-color printing, then that sets a whole set of constraints. There are certain colors I can't do, certain things I may want to do. Um, they're going to say how big it is, and there's certain, you know, eight and a half by 11, or is it a big spread? Is it a poster? Is it, you know, a postcard? And those constraints are um, sort of inherent in in certain kinds of work. And so if I am a... Uh, graphic designer I have there one set if I'm a product designer it's a different set if I design cars it's another set of constraints and and pretty much every um, problem that I was ex- uh, um, engaged with and, and working on we had a set of constraints and, and as a design consulting firm we became really good at, at getting our customers or clients to tell us what the constraints were we're doing a handheld you know uh, phone for palm and we have to ask them you know how long does the battery need to last uh, you know how how um, Close can these these uh, buttons be together before our finger can't push them? Uh, you know um, those kinds of questions. And so when I started studying the process of of design, the process of innovation, I became interested. Are there a set of generic constraints that you could ask about any problem? And so not just designing a handheld device or laying out a you know a spread on a website, but actually for any problem, what are the things that are likely to be 
you know, the constraints that it has. And so what I've come up with is, is, is these sort of six perspectives that are, that happen to be six ways that we view innovation, but that are also six constraints to, um, I think, to the success of um, innovative work in organizations. So I can, I'll, let me go ahead and I'll, I'll just um, you know, sort of step through them. So the first, at, at the first level, think of individuals, that if you have innovation like we were just talking, there's a, there's a spark, there's this creative idea. So an innovation always has an idea, and that's basically the beginning of the process. And ideas come from people. And if people can't develop those different ideas, those new ideas, you know, the think different kind of stuff, then you're not going to have innovation. Because if they can't think differently and they can't come up with something new, it's not going to be the beginning of that, of that process. And so there's a constraint around our ability to generate ideas. And I go into the, in the book in a little bit more detail about how people see things and how people process information, how we express our ideas to each other. But just think of it as if I don't come up with a good idea, if I'm not thinking different, then I'm probably not going to have a good innovation. Then the next layer is to say take these people and put them into groups because anything that's interesting that you're going to do is probably going to involve other people. And you need them to either give you money or you need them to work for you or you need them to buy your product or, you know, something. So there's other people actually matter. And so when we leave the person's head, you know, the, the idea part, we say, okay, well, how are we going to make that idea into something meaningful? That's when the other people come in. And there uh, probably, you know, we've all experienced it being in a meeting and someone criticizes an idea. Like, I think we should, you know, use antimatter for that. So everyone laughs and criticizes, oh, what a ridiculous thing, Owens. Um, then all of a sudden, I have this emotional response, right, where I'm, I'm afraid, I, I shut down, I feel like I've been, um, um, you know, my status has been pushed down in the group with respect to the other people, and it becomes all of a sudden this emotional thing. And so we have these, um, this sort of aspect of, of how it is you go through the process of innovation, that if you don't have groups that function well, if they criticize each other, if they're risk-averse, if they try to solve every problem the same way. Look, we solved the problem last week like that. Let's just use the same solution again. Um, but that really gets in the way, and that becomes a constraint. At the group level also, so at this group level, also the idea of a process. A lot of organizations, a lot of people, a lot of groups, I work with student groups all the time here, and say, oh, go off and do a brainstorm and come back with some ideas. They, they start doing it, but they really have no idea what they're doing because they haven't talked about what do we do first, what do we do second, what do we do third. Are we going to explore first and then criticize those ideas? Are we going to explore and criticize at the same time? Are we going to frame it and then, you know, uh, uh, and, and diverge and convergence, all those kinds of, of um, things come in there as well. So that's the second level. So the first was individual. second was group. The third is the organization level. Um, so you take the groups, put them in the organization. Organizations need a strategy, for example. And so if the strategy of the organization is to be a lean, fast follower, so, uh, I mean, just let's say we're Walmart, we're the everyday low-price leader, and someone has an idea that says, hey, I got this great idea. It's going to be really expensive, and it's a little bit, you know, um, um, rich, but uh, I think we should do it. And so Walmart's job is to say, no, that's not consistent with our strategy. Our strategy is a low-cost leader. Any, you know, any richness in the system, we're going to pass it on to our customers. And so we really need only ideas that are consistent with that as a strategy. And so when the idea of creative people must be stopped, this is where we see it a lot, is that people have ideas in their organizations, in their jobs. They bring them up, and the organization kills them. Well, it kills the ideas, that is. <laughs> Kill the person. Yeah. Kill the person. And, well, and there's, there's, yeah. research, there's really interesting research now on the group and organizational level that even in times of uncertainty, we say we yeah. want creative out-of-the-box thinking, and what we really do is judge it even harsher. Um, and kill it even more. Yes, yeah. 
and it is, um, I mean, it's just astounding. And so my training as a, as a, so I was a, trained as an engineer and, and I have all sorts of engineering credentials and all that. But, but, but I also did a, a PhD in social psychology and looking at the group's level. So it's really interesting to me what happens in groups. But that thing that you're talking about, that is, is interesting. Um, the kind of, of uh, risks, shifts and biases that groups will introduce as a way of trying to, um, you know, at one level stay cohesive as a group. So you want the group to stick together. You don't want to say stuff that's going to cause the group to explode, um, and that has its own its own form. So, so yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. So then the um, organizations also have um, structures, and we've seen you know big giant org chart where you realize you just look at it and go that is not <laughs> the base is coming out of that company because everything is you know in its little box and and you know the, the the information can't flow very easily. I like to look at a real tall hierarchies and talk about levels of no. And so how many levels of possible um, no are there? No, we won't do that. No, no, can't do that. Too expensive. No, no. Versus how many levels of yes have, it has to go through in order to get be successful, right? So one person can say no, and then you have like 10 hurdles like that to get through, but they all have to say yes in order for it to be a go. And that can um, and that's structural. It's not someone's fault. It really is just structural. Uh, organizations also, the resources, the organizations have um, demands that you use resources in like legitimate ways and so it has to, if you're going to spend money that way it has to have been in the budget well innovation almost by definition is not something i can budget for or, or if i do i want to put a line item in my budget you know future experiments that are likely to fail you know innovations in other words i need a million dollars for that for next year and no uh organizations are going to uh, uh you know put aside the resources in that way so when the need comes then it's not um they're not available it's will wait till next year and by next year, it may be too late. Either the window of opportunity closed or your competitor came in or something like that. So that's the third. So we have individuals, organizations, uh, groups and organizations. And I look at the industry level, what happens in industries. You have competition. You have rivals. You have um, um, suppliers. And, and all these uh, entities can act to cause us to, to be more or less uh, innovative, I believe. So in, in competition, we, we want to believe, and, and it often does, it drives innovation. That if the competitor has it lighter, then I have to make mine faster. And if theirs is make theirs faster, then I have to make mine more, you know, fit the hand better or, or however it is. And those are uh, kinds of innovation driven by competition. However, if I'm worried that if I make a misstep that my competitor is going to come in and, and you know, jump ahead of me, I may not want to innovate. I may want to keep, you know, cash aside. I may want to keep resources um, uh, as, as a company that allow me to, to stay competitive in the market, even if I'm not going to, to be pushing um, innovation ahead. So that's the, that's, uh, there's things that, that happen there at the organization. I mean, excuse me, at the, at the industry level, when you watch, you know, how, the way economists look at the uh, at innovations from an industry level. Then I move up a level, which is the, now we're on the fifth level, which is uh, society and societal in the way maybe a sociologist or an anthropologist would look at innovation, and they have definitions of it. And, and so there are things in um, uh, your social identity, social control. So let me give an example. If um, I use an example in the book, human cloning, that um, human cloning, cloning could be very innovative and it could be very um, um, you know creative. It has, it has these properties, but... Uh, a, a French doctor, I think it was in, in, in 2002, announced the birth of the first cloned human, and people went crazy. They started, they said, you know, this is illegal. So, so the, the United Nations made it illegal, banned it. Um, the, the U.S. Congress banned it. 
there was a Roman Catholic Church banned it. There was an Islamic fatwa issued against it. Everyone who could have could register an opinion, you know, that, a binding opinion about what we're going to do as a society, came out against it. And so that was a, you know, they were they stopped it. They basically that creative uh, um, person was stopped. There's a whole backstory behind that that's kind of weird, um, having to do with aliens and things. <laughs> Why the doctor went through this process? You, should, you can look it up uh, one day if you're uh, if you're curious. Um, so that was the fifth level. It was the societal uh, social control things, and then the last one, or the top one. I'm not sure if it's the top or the bottom. Is that um, in the end, the innovation has to actually work, uh, like in our physical world. And so sometimes that's the hard part. Sometimes we that we can't make an atom, you know, go to that place in the in the molecule. Uh, and that's what's stopping our innovation from working. Or we can't get an ATM to, you know, ATM network to process transactions at a million transactions per second. Then that's not going to work. And so that's the the six levels: individual, what goes on inside the person, group, what goes on inside of groups, organization, the way we structure organizations, what organizations are, are set out to do as their mission, the industry level, so the interactions among fields of, of organizations and the markets they serve. Uh, societal, how it is that we agree to be together, you know, as as humans, as people in a society, and then finally technology, like the thing, you know, the physics of the situation. Oh, no, that was long-winded. I apologize for <laughs> going off on that. No, not at all. I mean, that's that's the that's the core of the book, and I, but I feel like uh, I I don't know how to phrase this right. I feel like at, at some point we're always looking for. Um, what the leadership insight is, what leaders of organizations yeah. can do. And on, on some level, I feel like as we get higher up on the constraints, it's a bit of a letdown because it's sort of yeah. like, oh, we have this great idea, but we can't do anything about the technology not being there except yeah. bide our time. But what what can, uh, maybe just on the organizational or industry or even group level, what, what can leaders and, and managers do to kind of avoid these constraints and to stop killing or stop, yeah, yeah. stop killing creative people and their ideas? Yes, that's good. it's a good question. I, I definitely um, accept your your um, your point on that. The I, I call the lower ones the sort of the internal constraints versus the external constraints. The external ones are hard to move, and they're things that we can't um, do too much with. But the uh, let me um, um, well, let me answer your, your the, sort of the, the broad question. So there are things we can do if we know that society thinks a certain way about our. Um, product or a potential product, we can uh, we can advertise, we can lobby, we can try to change society and, and society's perspective. There's a great example with um, space tourism. Uh, Richard Bransom has his company, Virgin Galactic. You know, space tourism company. They want to take people to to space and bring them back. It turns out that Congress was about to pass a law that was um, basically would would have assigned all liability. So if this thing falls out of the sky, all liability would accrue to the company that that sent these the, the spacecraft up. And so, imagine uh, if Ford Motor Company had to have liability for every car they made. And so every time you crashed a car, um, Ford you know Ford was liable for that. And so clearly it would have killed the industry. It would not have made anything happen. So uh, Richard Bransom has these really smart people, these technologists. They invented a new kind of uh, rocket engine, this hybrid engine that's half liquid, half. Um, um, solid a rocket. They had you know great materials and composites and you know all these these calculations of how to get the thing up there. But that wasn't the problem. And the problem was Congress is going to pass this law to make it all you know not work, make it all useless. Having done this, and so the problem of innovation for him in that case is not to get more scientists to make the engine more um, 
um, uh, efficient. The problem is to go to Washington and stop this law from happening, which is, in fact, what he did. He got um, a number of uh, famous astronauts, I think it was John Glenn or Neil Armstrong, uh, on there. They went to Congress. They got hired a big lobbying group, and they just barely, right at the end, got the law killed so that um, they could actually do this new innovation, this new creative thing called uh, space tourism. And so sometimes we can intervene um, in, in the external world, in that way, but the, 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 let me now then then sort of push back into the uh, original question you had, which is what can a, a leader do? I think one thing we can do is is just um, uh, pass our attention through these different ways that people think about innovation. And so, uh, the in my individuals are they having ideas, and where are those ideas coming from? And if they're not having ideas, is it because they don't have you know they're not stimulated, or is it because I hire a certain kind of person who looks at the world a certain way? I have a bunch of people who all look at the world the same way. That's what they're going to talk about. That's what they're going to look at. And if I ask them to do something different, it's not likely to happen. And so, so in that sense, we could do we could think about hiring. Right? So how we hire people. Um, and then the next one could be in um, if go and sit in in a, in a you're a leader of an organization. Either sit in. Ideally, it would be a camera uh, in the room. Um, of a group meeting, doing a brainstorm on your next product launch or your next uh, um, you know your next. Uh, Strategic plan and see are are they playful? Are they um, asking questions that are questions that are scary? Right. So you know what would uh, if you're Kodak in the 80s, the question that no one wanted to ask was what happens if film goes away? Right. We got this lab and we just invented this digital camera and and what happens if film goes away? They were afraid to ask the question. And so if you could you know have a voyeur voyeur cam into your um, meetings. And, and sort of see this, are you talking about those things? And, and, it, and it's not that you have to then do it. It's just you have to, to discuss it and play with it and say, oh, what if that world turned out that way? What would we do? Have we hedged that? Yeah, you were going to say quite something. Sorry, yeah. I, I was just laughing because I was thinking quite, quite the timely example. It's sort of I, I actually had a conversation with my, uh, with my mother who hates using digital cameras uh, uh, about how horrible it is that four Kodak went out of business and, and me being the kind of – Creative innovation leadership guys. No, no, no. This this was coming for 15 years because they kept yeah. ignoring the question: What happens if people don't want to use film anymore? What happens? Uh, to me, it was what happens when a digital camera takes a higher quality picture uh, than right. film, and then it's all then the game's over. Right. And so that what they were the and that's a, I think to talk about this a little bit. They they were looking at an early stage. Um, so, so the, this guy Stephen Sasser was his name. It invented this digital camera that uh, Kodak had the first patent in this. He comes out of the lab and says, "I got this great thing," and it was like I think I believe it was point oh one megapixels. And so he shows it to people, and what do they do? That they laugh, you know, they laugh. They like fall out of their chairs laughing, like, "What on earth are you are you thinking? That's something going to be something meaningful to us?" Um, because the quality is so bad compared to what we can do in one hour, right? Why would we even consider that? And then the problem is, is that they didn't realize that that thing was going to get better, and it was going to get better fast. And it got better fast by companies like um, Casio, also Sony did a lot of work early. Um, because Sony was, a, um, you know, they had no preconceived ideas of what quality was in photography. They just knew they had to keep their business alive and keep growing. Yeah, and so they, you know, they, yeah. I, I think this is a bit of a tangent, but why, why does that seem to always happen, especially in technology? I mean, you think about my default question to stump students of mine is who invented the graphical user interface and some people uh, think they're savvy and say Apple instead of Microsoft but the real answer is Xerox 
um, and did yeah. the same thing. Sort of invented it, didn't see a use for it, and then someone else took it. Right. So that is um, so uh, partly. So one uh, one ex- explanation for me is you know chapter four, I think it is, uh, is is the organization. So the structure. So I'm Xerox. I think it's a great example. Xerox. I have a, a this R and D lab in California. And this is the 70s. I got long-haired hippie types out there. They're probably smoking dope and you know uh, doing their computer thing, computer scientist types. And they're you know it's like 70s in the in California. And then on the East Coast, you have uh, Xerox. A bunch of patents just expired. Um, they have new entrants. So a bunch of Asian copier companies are coming into the market, and they're thinking like, "Oh my goodness, like we're in trouble. Like we need some help." And so they call over to California. And they don't understand what these guys are talking about. They say, oh, the computer and the interface. They say, look, we just need a copier. <laughs> you know, we just need something to, to defend our, um, you know, our markets. And, and they're just, they just couldn't communicate with each other. The same organization, they couldn't move the information back and forth. And so I think at one level that we, could, we could see that as structural, um, a structural problem. But the, uh, um, I think you, you, it's, a, it's a great point why companies don't do that. Some have. Uh, look at IBM, right? IBM still exists, and they exist as a different kind of company. They saw the rise of services, the um, decline of value placed on hardware, and so they were able to make the transition like that, right? So they, they still exist as a company. They made a very nice, uh, smooth change. It wasn't smooth for everyone there because, you know, it, it was hard, but they were able to make the change through there. So sometimes companies make it through, and we don't um, um, pay as close attention to those as the ones that fail, but most of them fail, I would agree with you. Yeah, it, it, it's such a the, the Xerox, and I think I think it's in your book that they talk about Xerox. They, the guy, these are the guys that played around with the lasers and all that sort of stuff at Park, and you, mm-hmm. you feel like they're they're nailing the organizational structure, and yet uh, they're also not because once it has to go up through the hierarchy of nodes, right, um, it, it gets killed. Um, yeah, and then and another thing is is uh, just as, as a, just quickly the um, the idea of strategy. So. Uh, Xerox defined its problem as we need to protect the copier market and not as we are the imaging or the document company, you know, the thing that they became later. And had they made that uh, definitional switch early, that then they could have defined what um, Xerox Park in California was doing into their strategy and, and made a place for it. And yeah. basically what Jobs did was he took all these disgruntled people who were had these great ideas and knew this was the future, and Xerox wouldn't listen to them, so they said, you know what? Creative people must be stopped at this organization. I'm pointing this other one. Steve Jobs, he loves us. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a um, it, to me it's a great title choice because it shows exactly that. That's that's not the, what you're advocating. That's the mindset of most organizations. And then the real yes, people that yeah. get labeled as lifelong innovators are the ones that go, oh, if they want to be stopped over here, here, have free reign, go mm-hmm, over here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's good to point out because sometimes people ask me like, you don't really mean that, do you? Creative people must be stopped. I said, no, 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 I don't mean that. I mean, that's the way the world behaves, and so we need to keep keep that in mind. We need to have some healthy paranoia. Oh, uh, yes, exactly. And and I'm all over um, anything that accentuates the negative um, to me. You know, I think we I do a series with my students called How to Fail. That's actually how to succeed, oh. but it's based around failure. Um, you know, and I have a, a special place in my heart for books with titles like Your Marketing Sucks or Your Management Sucks, those kind of things. So <laughs> I, I think uh, not only... Not only does it get at the heart of what the uh, the most common organization thinks about innovation, uh, I think it just does a great job of drawing your attention in. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, for me, I think I was um, I, I was infected with that from Bob Sutton, who was my advisor, who um, uh, he sort of it did the. Um, I think it was in the '60s. Um, there was a whole stream of social psychology that was always like, "Look how dumb people are." 
and and they would like show you know show all these dumb things that we would do, all these biases and and the you know the prison experience. All these things were were sort of in that kind of very cynical um, uh, mode of of research. And so I, I think I, I got uh, picked up a little bit on that. I mean, it's kind of fun, and it does make you pay a little bit more attention. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting you, that you bring up Bob. He's, he's been on the, the podcast before. We're a big fan of his stuff, and it's funny because when I when I read your book, I placed it as sort of a um, alongside weird ideas that work, which is sort of like mm. here's how to get people to – here's the internal, and then uh, creative people must be stopped. It's more about here are all the constraints. Once you have the creative ideas, here's what's going to block them from becoming useful, yeah. becoming innovations, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I am definitely influenced by Bob. Obviously, he was my advisor. But that um, the uh, I, I know the weird ideas at work. I think it's it's eleven and a half weird ideas at work. Was was I remember when it was twenty six ideas and and um, uh, we're sort of sort of thinking think, thinking through these. I mean, Bob's thinking through them. I'm, I'm um, uh, thinking through them at the same time. And and um, for me, it was really uh, the lots of the um, innovation books. They either they they were so uh, circumsc- they were so um, focused on one kind of behavior, or it was sort of a laundry list of, of of sort of do this, do this, do this that really didn't make sense to me. Sort of uh, in, in a in a kind of a um, you know philosophical way, it didn't didn't make sense in the way I understand the world. And so we had these real focused things, or we had these laundry lists, and, I, and that's where my struggle was: is going back and forth. Um, the weird ideas that work is really for me is it, it really addresses the organization and the group level constraints um, in there. Uh, you know, offline, you and I were talking about the diffusion of innovation, and I could see that working. That works at the industry and the society level. And so, in many ways, the book is is you know, if, if you if you have a bunch of books in innovation and you're trying to make sense of how they fit together, that's what I try to do is create a sort of a review piece or a map to say you know these kind of books are going here. These kind of books are about the organization, the way the organization works. Um, Tom Kelly, who we haven't mentioned, does a lot of work in, in design. He tends to work at the you know sort of the group. Um, group level and talks about you know group interactions, the ten hats. Like, what do you do when you're in the group to um, you know further your vision and, and do that um, um, and participate in the group. And so, in that way, that if you if you're a connoisseur of, of um, innovation, and I've tried to make this this um, practical. That is, you can use it to to um, do innovation, but also one that is in the in the sort of in the abstract or an intellectual sense that um, puts these things all up against each other so you can begin to see like, oh, I see why you know, psychologists think that that's what innovation is and why economists think that it's something else and why they don't eat, you know, they don't go to the same cocktail parties because they, they make assumptions that are completely incompatible. Yeah, and you know, that's, that's actually a great way to look at it as sort of a framework to place all the other um, texts in because it really is that. I'm thinking about you know, normally when we think creativity books, we think like orbiting the giant hairball and just lots of little, yeah. like, you know, 1970s Southern California um, style books, and then we get large uh-huh. innovation, and they're they're very um, corporate energized. And then, yeah, you're right. I, I yeah, which is a, a great framework to sort of place all of them in as working together. Um, yeah, and it's sort of like uh, I'll be honest, it's sort of like one book to rule them all, and but in the darkness bind them. But it works really well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, the, I, I think I even admit up front, like I'm not creating something new. I'm really just taking these things that, that are all so hard to understand if you don't build a framework to look at them with. Um, the framework which happens to be um, actionable then. And then you can say, okay, like a designer says, okay, what constraints do I have for this problem I have and which is the one I have to sort of grapple with most um, and early in the process. 
And so then go back to your, uh, if I go back to your, um, your question, what a manager can do, I think the manager can also do, the leader can also um, look at the problem, the innovation problem that your organization's facing and try to help understand, is it a technical problem that's stopping us now or is it a structural problem or is it something in the market or is it something in this, in this person who's, who's, who's I'm asking to do this for me? Because you would solve each one of those problems in a different way. They probably are all exist to some level, but probably one of them is much more, um, let's call it constraining, than the others, and that's the one you have to solve first. Because if you don't solve that one, it's not going to work. And everything you do before you solve that one is just wasted energy or, or energy put at risk because you haven't solved the showstopper, is what I call the showstopper problem, the showstopper constraint. Yeah. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a great series of steps to work through to get there and, of course, to know whether or not it's worth going through all the steps because if there is a showstopper problem that yeah. you solve, um, then, you know, why go through the first couple of stages? And I wouldn't worry yeah. about the disclaimer of, of – uh, not much new, just advising and practical. If I've learned anything about creativity and innovation, everything is a remix. Um, yours just happens yeah. to be practical, which is what attracted me to it so much. Oh, good. Well, thanks. Yeah, yeah that so is. Like, uh, um, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit, actually, from from the book "Creative People Must Be Stopped" to um, your own uh, as a creative person and what uh, mm -hmm. what hopefully is not going to stop you. What are What are you working on now? What's next for you? Okay, I'm I'm working on a um I'm I'm because of the book and also because of where I am is Vanderbilt. I've, there's a number of companies I work with here in town and and down in Huntsville. Huntsville is uh, Alabama, which is where Marshall Space Park Center is, is about two hours down. So I work with companies all around, and they're asking me to help them. Um, and I'm asking them to let me help them uh, work in their uh, uh, basically in the early stage insights and, and 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 developing ideas into concepts that can actually be then evaluated. So in that real early stage of, of the innovation process, and so I'm trying to figure out a um, work on basically a, a process or a workbook or a um, a set of steps that that people can go through in order to you know get a bunch of people in a room, and at the end of that you have a set of ideas and a set of tests that you could run against those ideas to know if they're good or not. And there's a lot in there, actually, um, in that. So I'm, I'm working on that. I'm also um, um, I'm teaching uh, – I teach new product development. And so we actually have a local client a company here. It's a, it's a company you've heard of. We're designing a household – common household product with a motor in it that makes loud noises and, and cleans flat surfaces. Uh, and we're the, – the class is designing a new uh, vacuum cleaner uh, for that company. And that's pretty exciting. Um, and that's that's taking a lot of, of energy. The idea there is, um, and I did this. I, I was um, actually um, I worked. I was CEO of, of a company in town called Griffin Technologies. Griffin makes iPod accessories, iPod peripherals, things mm -hmm. like that. Um, yeah. And uh, they were a client for the class early. And what I was uh, sort of my own personal uh, take on it was, I could take a set of. of I teach in MBA schools. I have a lot of MBAs. I, I could take a set of MBAs and get to a, uh, you know the same ideas that a company that does this on a daily basis for money does um, just by using a process. And so I would take, you know, 10 teams of MBAs, and we would go through this process, and at the end of the, the you know, semester, a little trade show, and they would set up the trade show, and then they would probably at least hit, like, three or four things that, that uh, Griffin was working on inside with all their knowledge, and, and just by doing user-based design, by understanding um, the company's strategy, understanding what they were good at, um, and so I thought, you know, three or five out of ten is not bad of, of getting uh, of getting those ideas there. So I'm really interested in the process 
in the steps that you go through of, of considering information um, um, as you move forward. Uh, and besides that, I mean, it, it is um, the, uh, the book is out. I'm, I'm sort of, of uh, landlocked's not the right word, but I'm, I'm kind of um, tied up with a lot of teaching, with a lot of things. And so this summer, I plan to um, go around and, and, and talk about it more. Uh, I also um, do a lot of. Uh, I'm, I have a bunch of um, electronics projects I'm working on. I'm, I'm also um, learning how to brew beer. <laughs> so, as far as the, the various kinds of things that, that I'm working on, uh, I have a sh- I have a shop in my back. And, and last summer it was a writing office. Then it became an electronics lab. And right now it's a brewery. Um, I'm not sure what it's going to morph into next. And, and let me let me ask you this as well. I, we always ask this of everybody, especially the people that are, yeah. that are great writers. We ask, what are they? What are you reading right now? Okay, let's see. I'm reading, uh, I just got a great book. I think it's great um, so far. It's uh, Jim Adams uh, wrote a book. He was the author of Conceptual Blockbusting. He wrote a, He just wrote a, released a book. It's called Good Products, Bad Products. He's really looking at a lot of the emotional stuff and, and um, you know, what are our ideas of quality that are not, you know, defects per million. So, like, what goes into that of, of smell and taste and feel and, and what's elegance. And, and so that's what I'm reading. I'm also reading, uh, uh, trying to think of what's on my nightstand. I read uh, Make Magazine. And Make Magazine is a, a quarterly, a small uh, thing that I wish I had when I was a kid. And that would have been, um, I guess I was pretty happy, but <laughs> I would have been a little bit happier uh, with that. I'm, so I'm reading that. I'm reading a book called Business Model Generation, which is a um, so a, a way of, of, it's written, it's kind of interesting. It's written by a bunch of different authors um, each of which has a, a, a couple few pages, and they, they're, it's all uh, focused on different ways of thinking through business models and, and different ways of, of, of um, sort of, uh, I guess, conceptualizing um, um, how they is and bring analogs from other business, from other industries into your industry. And then I'm reading this um, odd book, which is called Chungking Mansions, the, the Ghetto at the Center of the World, and it's about this weird building in the middle of Hong Kong, um, that a lot of immigrants and, and people are at, and they um, it's just sort of this weird building that stands out. And I happen to have been in a um, China, uh, Indian restaurant there. Um, a friend took me there, and I, and when I saw the book in the bookstore, I say, "Wait a minute, I've been there." And so I'm reading that, and it's a it's a big long uh, anthropology uh, book, and a serious anthropology book about um, um, immigrants, uh, um, how people make space, they fit in with ethnic Chinese, and it's just, it's kind of cool actually. Okay, that's cool. That's that's one that I'll that I'll add to my cross breeding list of sort of other ideas. You can imagine we read a lot of sort of business management, leadership, innovation, talent, right, right. But then every once in a while, you want to break out and read, you know, a, a book like The Most Human Human or or like Junking Mansion. So I'm definitely going to. Oh add right, that. yeah. Oh good, good. So, well, yeah, and, I think it's called it's uh, like, Ghetto at the Center of the World or something like that. So yeah, cool. I'm, I'll be looking it up on Amazon this afternoon and and All to right. the uh, to the to the listeners, if you have not already added creative people must be stopped to your list, uh, I'm going to ask you to stop stopping the creative people in your organization and check out the book. Dave Owens, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you.